Hey, this is The Mouth Off with Kyone Wolf, storytelling from the Mark Twain house. I'm Kyone Wolf. Now, since this is the first episode of The Mouth Off, I want to give you a little bit of background. I love stories, and so do you. Whether you know it or not, stories are everywhere. Beyond books and magazines and soap operas, stories are in the news we hear. Stories are in the conversations we have when we get together with our friends. And stories are in advertising. Stories are in answering machine messages. They're everywhere, and they help us learn lessons faster if we do it right. And in 2013, I started The Mouth Off at the Mark Twain House, and it's been going strong ever since. So I decided to get this podcast out of the Twain House and into your ears because some of these stories are just too good to keep to ourselves. Now, Samuel Clemens obviously gets props for being the most well-known storyteller around these parts in Hartford, but the people who have graced our stage since the show started are famous to us here in this 21st century. With that, meet the first storyteller in this inaugural episode, Reverend Dr. Shelley Best. Since 2001, she's served as the president and CEO of the Conference of Churches in Hartford, and she's the director and chief curator of the 224 Ecospace, a social enterprise in our capital city where changemakers work, create, and lead. Here's Shelley's story from our February 2018 show. The theme was It's an Emergency. So it was the fall of 1968, and I was a six-year-old colored girl living in Norfolk, Connecticut. How did we get there? My father was a civil rights activist, and he thought that we should put our bodies on the line and live the cause. So on this particular day, I was laying on the Formica kitchen table, you know, the kind with the chrome trim around the edges and the matching red chairs. (laughs) I was laying on the kitchen table and I was coloring in a protest sign for my father that I had stenciled for him. He was going to be marching on the green of Litchfield, Connecticut. (laughs) And I wanted my father to have a really good sign. And so the sign I was working on was one that I had seen in Ebony magazine, and it said, I am a man. At the time, my father was away at National Guard drill, and I was working on the poster, and I was really, you know, involved in it. And so at the time, I was playing a 45 record, James Brown, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. (laughs) Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. So I'm laying on the kitchen table and I'm coloring in this sign and I know I feel sort of a storm rumbling in my family, but I tell you that within the course of the next year, we were going to be in a full-fledged hurricane. In the fall of 1968, it was a few months beyond the assassination of Martin Luther King, so stuff was getting kind of edgy in community. I remember the funeral of Martin Luther King. My father was crying, and I was sitting on his lap, and I was crying, and we were watching the floor model television. We only got three channels in Connecticut at that time, Channel 3, Channel 8, Channel 30, and we're watching the funeral of Martin Luther King, and it was a horse-drawn carriage that was dragging his coffin through the street. And my father was crying, and I was crying because we were starting to wonder what's going to happen to the movement now that Martin Luther King is dead. And you see, you have to understand that my parents came from an age where they were like really good Negro people. See, really good Negroes were like the press and curl kind of people, like pressed 
shirts and really clean and polished people living up in Norfolk. We wanted to be polished people in Norfolk, as if the press and curl would make a difference in a place like Norfolk being the only black family in the town. But anyway, that's what my parents wanted to do. And in the meantime, things were getting kind of funny with my older brother and sister. And so even though my parents were the press and curl clean type people, my older brother and sister were starting to evolve into something else. It was the 60s, if you can remember the times. Those neat, clean parents started to raise these different kinds of teenagers. See, my mother at the time, she was really focused on my baby sister, who was four years younger than me. So her hands were full. She wasn't into the movement. She just wanted to take care of my baby sister. And then my older sister, Sandy, who was 12 years older than me, Sandy was the first one to decide in our family that she was going to have an Afro, which was really radical in my family at that time. And Sandy had these really cool go-go boots. And some of you don't understand the significance of white patent leather go-go boots. <laughs> but my sister, Sandy, was super cool with these go-go boots. And she started cutting off her skirts and hiding the fact that she was wearing mini skirts to school because my parents didn't know that she had a secret wardrobe that she would carry in her bag along with the white go-go boots. <laughs> and then meanwhile, my older brother, who was nine years older than me, he was a jock, so people liked him because he played basketball and he played soccer. So people liked him, they enjoyed him, they thought he was good people, he was enjoyable. But I can remember as a child kind of watching what's happening with my brother and my sister, and I knew something was going on, but at the time I didn't really fully understand that they were high, they were tripping, they were doing all kinds of drugs that my parents didn't understand at the time. And so I can recall going out in the backyard one day, and my brother was sitting there in this like fringe jacket. He had his fringe on, and he had one of those headbands, and he had these little round John Lennon sunglasses. And he was just sort of sitting up on a rock, and he was like, hey, Jude, make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Hey, so don't let it into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. You have to understand better, better. Ah! <laughs> that was my brother, and as this six-year-old, I'm kind of like, something's not right here. And see, <laughs> there was a difference in how my brother got treated, who was younger than my sister, and how my sister got treated. Anytime my sister wanted to go out, she had to bring me. Anytime my brother went out, nobody said anything. So my sister would go out to these events and bring me with her. And I remember they would do really weird stuff, like we'd go out into the woods, and we'd park cars in the middle of the woods. And I'm a little six-year-old with my sister, and they would all dance around the cars, and then sometimes they would just stare. <laughs> the next morning, early in the morning, she got up and she came into my bedroom and she said, Shelly, I'm going up into the woods, and I'm taking a walk with our bulldog, and I'm Afghan. 
and that's where I'm going. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so my mother got up in the morning and she's like, where's Sandy? And I'm like, she took a walk in the woods with a bulldog and an Afghan. And my mother's like, we don't have a bulldog. <laughs> Next thing I know, they call the state police. And the state police, because we didn't have regular police in Norfolk, Connecticut, so the state police had arrived and they said to me, okay, what I want you to do, go get some of her shoes so we can pick up her scent and we can find her. So I went and picked out these lovely green suede chunk heel shoes with the little buckle on the front and I brought them to the police so they could get her scent and so they started looking for her and my father was at National Guard drill that weekend so they called my father at Camp Dempsey, because that was the governor at the time, and had my father come home from drill. And at the time, there were these police cars and all this activity and people looking for my sister. And as this little then seven-year-old child, I'm sitting on the porch and I'm kind of watching all this going on and people are seeing me but not seeing me. They see me but they don't see me. And I see the cars and I see the activity. And all of a sudden I hear this sound in the atmosphere and all the leaves on our lawn start blowing around and all of a sudden out of the sky a helicopter lands on our front yard and there is my dad jumping out in his military uniform. He has come to help with the search to find my sister, Sandy. And they see me, but they don't see me. And when it became about nightfall, all of a sudden they found Sandy and they brought her into the house and the Afghan was wrapped around her shoulders. An Afghan, those crocheted blankets with the black and the little granny squares in the middle and they had the afghan around Sandy's shoulders and she had leaves in her hair and apparently she had also taken my father's ivory handled rifle but she had lost it up in the woods and I heard them say she had a bad trip so she looked at me and she saw me but she didn't see me and they put her in the station wagon with the wood sides, and they were going to take her down to Newtown State Hospital. So they put Sandy in the car, and at the time she saw me, but she didn't see me, and then all of a sudden the radio came on, and Sandy looked at me and recognized me, and they started singing, Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary in time. Remember me to one who lives there. She once was a true love of mine. Big thanks to Reverend Dr. Shelley Best. You can see all of her fine work at the 224. Now for something completely different, this next story is from Jason Sims. He told it at the February 2016 show, and the theme was thanks, but no thanks. So I moved here from Portland, Oregon. 
And uh, I don't know how much you know about that town, but it's pretty much a requirement that you have some sort of a wacky creative project. And I was the lead singer of the Metal Shakespeare Company, which uh, <laughs> was a five-piece metal band in the style of Iron Maiden or Twisted Sister. And we wore Elizabethan garb, uh, <laughs> pantaloons, tights, uh, lace-up velvet tops with some 80s flair, like high tops, or the tights might be pink or leopard print. All of our lyrics were pulled straight from the bard. So we'd actually do scenes from the bard. And it started as a joke, but everyone in the band was a really good musician, except for me. The silly conceit of the act just gave them the freedom to play the over-the-top solo that they always had in them and wanted to unleash. And it gave them license to perform at maximum intensity. And so we created this really out-of-control show. And before long, we were touring the West Coast, playing colleges and Shakespeare festivals and clubs. And wherever we went, we got a lot of press. I'm a PR guy, and the Metal Shakespeare Company was the easiest story to sell. And uh, so we started to have big dreams about becoming a large-scale act, like Blue Man Group or Medieval Times. And around this time, about four years in, we got a note from a producer at America's Got Talent. She wanted us to try out for the Portland taping of the show. And we'd even get to skip the first round of auditions. So we felt pretty cool walking past that huge line of people on the sidewalk with our ridiculous outfits and our glam rock guitars. And when we got inside, we performed for a panel of producers who agreed that we should go on to the actual taping of the show in front of the celebrity judges, who at the time were Howie Mandel, Sharon Osbourne, and Piers Morgan. And part of our act was that we would do improvised Shakespearean dialogue for our stage banter. So I might walk around in the crowd and talk to people, might sit on someone's lap and recite a sonnet into their eyes. And if someone was belligerent, I might say something like, hast thou imbibed a full hogshead of ale? Get thee to the stocks till thou dost regain thy wits. And we actually had a stocks on stage that we would put people in. It was cool. <laughs> and whenever we did press, we did it in Shakespeare as well. And so with all these cameras, at the America's Got Talent taping, we agreed we had to just be in character the entire time. And that was easy on that first audition day. But the actual taping of the show was a six-hour day, most of which was spent in a sort of backstage purgatory with all the other acts. There was a, like an a cappella group in the corner doing these ominous vocal warm-up sounds. And there was a, a troupe of preteen girls with a, like a hip-hop dance routine, and they would just sort of leap across the room periodically. And we were interacting with all these people in character, and they started to think we were insane, <laughs> which is a pretty high bar in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, but the producers liked it, and they, they, we caught their attention, and they, they sent a camera crew just to follow us. And I wondered if that crew caught our reaction when we saw the school buses pull up outside. Because as it turned out, in order to fill the 2,000-seat venue in the middle of a weekday, they had to bus in school children who, you know, famously love Shakespeare and definitely appreciate metal parodies. And uh, so the next sign that everything was going to go really great was that there was an air band, uh, another 80s act, and they were pretty much like what we did, except minus the Shakespeare part and minus the music part. They just played air guitar. And the judges loved it, and they sent them on to Vegas the next round. And so while I'm worried that they might have taken our spot, 
the next act comes up, and he's a guy kind of dressed as some sort of ancient Egyptian wizard, and he calls himself Maginga the Magician. And he does a quick change act where he swings his cape and his mask changes. And it's terrible, but that's not his worst problem. He actually can't see, and he just walks right off the stage. And so the judges stop the show, and the air is just leaking out of the room. And uh, while that's happening, they wheel on our equipment, and as soon as they're ready, they send us out to face the biggest crowd we've ever played for by far. And uh, so I walk out, introduce the concept to the band, and they tell us to you know, go ahead and perform. And I say, Hamlet, act five, scene two. And we launch into the last scene of the play where everyone dies. And normally, this gets a great response. There's moshing and headbanging, and people are laughing because we're trying to sword fight and play guitar at the same time. But this time, ah, there's a buzzer. One of the judges hit their buzzer. There's three X's above the stage. And if a judge hits their buzzer, an X lights up. And if all three X's go off, the lights turn out, and they just chastise you and send you home. But, uh, and like a minute in, ah, another buzzer. So we got one more buzzer left. Otherwise, we don't even get to finish our song. And we're coming to the big finale where I, as Hamlet, kill Claudius, the lead guitarist, before I die from a wound from a poison blade. And as I lay there on the ground, the music cuts out dramatically. And normally at this point, people cheer. It's wonderful. But this time, like a slow wave, the booze rumble from the back of the theater, and they crash onto the stage, and I just lay there taking in this experience of getting booed by 2,000 middle schoolers at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. And I rise to my feet to face the judges, still in character, and I uh, basically at this point just hoping for good quotes for our press materials. And uh, Howie Mandel delivers. He says, you guys are crazy, and uh, this, you guys can really play. And so I'm really glad that Howie Mandel, the guy from Bobby's World, is picking up on our vibe. <laughs> but he votes no. And so next up is Sharon Osborne, and she kind of interviews us. And we tell her, milady, it is our highest aspiration to perform in a production of King Lear alongside thine husband, the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Because in the next round, you get a celebrity mentor, and we're gunning for Ozzy Osbourne. And so she takes the bait and votes yes. And now it's all up to Piers Morgan. And Piers Morgan, as it turns out, has a lot to say about the Metal Shakespeare Company, mostly involving our accents being terrible, our music being god-awful racket, and my favorite quote, that we are desecrating a great playwright. And uh, that appeared in every press release that I sent from then on. So we come off stage, and the producer who invited us is back there, and she apologizes and says, you know, she believed in us, but she just can't control what those celebrity judges are going to do. And so we start packing up our stuff. Uh, we're half in costume. We've got T-shirts on the top, pantaloons on the bottom. <laughs> and uh, none of the other contestants will even look at us. It's like we're infected with rejection, and they don't want to catch it. And so instead of watching the rest of the show, we go to a bar, and... Uh, I'm at the bar, and I tell the guys about a well-known punk band that my old band, when I was a teenager, opened for. And I asked the singer of that band what the secret to fame was. And I'll never forget that he said, dumb luck. <laughs> and so we sit there and wonder, like, what if we had gone before the air guitar band? Or what if Maginga had just held it together, not fallen off the stage? <sighs> Maybe things would have been different.
But uh, by the time the show aired, the band had broken up. And we tuned in to see if they used any of our footage, though. And they did. At the very beginning of the show, uh, there's a montage of all the acts that performed. And for a split second, it cuts to me in my floppy Shakespeare hat and frilly collar in full falsetto face, hitting a high note. Ah! And that's it. They didn't use any of the other six hours of footage that they shot of us. But I guess you could say that the Metal Shakespeare Company went out on a high note. Thank you. That was Jason Sims. And since telling this story, he's swapped his Elizabethan accent for an Irish brogue as a member of the New Haven Gaelic Players. And it's unclear whether or not or to what degree he's still using falsetto. Used with enthusiastic permission, here's just a little snippet of the Metal Shakespeare Company's Richard III, Act 5, Scene 4. As Mark Twain said, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. Tell your story at one of our live shows. Dates, themes, tickets, and swag are at marktwainhouse.org slash mouthoff. At that site, you'll also see all the other cool stuff Twain has going on, in addition to funny and really fascinating house tours. Twain's tradition of storytelling continues, with writing classes and workshops, chances to write in Mark Twain's library, and the popular Mark My Words series, where authors from around the world come to talk about how current issues are colliding with their work. Follow The Twain House on Facebook and sign up for the newsletter at marktwainhouse.org. The Mouth Off is hosted and produced by me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Jennifer LaRue. Learn about my other shows at kionewolf.com, on Twitter and Instagram at kionewolf, on Facebook at Kion Wolf Productions, and you can be a part of fueling all of this at patreon.com slash kionewolf. Imagine the story you'll tell about being a sponsor for the Mouth Off podcast. For rates, email mouthoffhartford at gmail.com. All right, till next time, whatever happens, make it a good story. Bye. <laughs>